The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Uh, Today is part two of the Revelation, part two and the final part. Uh, I'm just doing two parts of an introduction to the book of Revelation because I really believe that if you get what I'm saying in these two parts, that's all you need. Okay, you can read the rest of the book and figure it out. All right? Maybe not all the little intricate details, but you got an idea what's going on. And I, I really think that if you get this, then you'll understand. Um, we discussed last week uh, two basic issues that are really keys to this book. And that was, when was it written? And secondly, what is the proper approach to the book? Now, we explored the question of the date of Revelation last week. When was it written? The interpretation of Revelation hinges on whether it was written before or after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, the evidence, the external evidence for a late date is very, very weak. But I think the evidence, the internal evidence, is strong, and it points to an early date. Revelation, I said, was written probably around A.D. 65 to 66. Now, according to the early date view, Revelation speaks of the birth pains of the kingdom. It speaks of the end of the Old Covenant Israel and the beginning of the church. Revelation is not about the end of the world. That is the key to understanding this. It's not about the end of the world. It's about the end of Old Covenant Israel. You just get that right and it's going to make a huge difference. We also explored the proper approach to the book. How do we approach this? Well, there are four basic views on how you approach this. There's the historicist view, which looks at everything through history and, you know, Revelation goes through the history and points out things that happened all through history. Well, that... We just kind of discount that view. The idealist view just takes a look at it more, uh, you know, ideally, so to speak. They're, they're not looking at it as an historical event. It's just kind of teaching some spiritual truths. The futurist view, which is held by most people, and we looked at the preterist view. And we focused our discussion on these last two because they're the most popular, the futurist and the preterist. Now, the futurist view is undoubtedly the most popular today, Uh, This is what most people in the church hold. They hold to a futurist view. They look at Revelation and they say, it talks about the future. This is going to happen. This is our future. Now, if you do that, you have to totally ignore the time statements in the book. And ignore the fact that it was written in the first century. Two individuals in the first century, the seven churches which are in Asia Minor, and he lists the churches it's written to. And one of them is not us. So we're looking at the Revelation from the full preterist view. This view understands all the prophecies of Revelation as having already been fulfilled. Now I say that, but let me just add a little bit here. Revelation 20 and 21 have been fulfilled. We're in the kingdom, but it's ongoing. The kingdom continues. So it's not like it's over and done. They have begun. They're being fulfilled. We're in the kingdom of God. The Preterist view says the Great Tribulation, which a lot of people are looking forward to, which I don't understand that too much, okay? 
the rapture, the resurrection, the judgment, and the second coming of Christ are all behind us. They're all first century events. They're synchronous, and they're all first century. According to Preterists, full and partial, the Great Tribulation was the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman army in AD 70. So in other words, this book was practical to the people who, wrote, who read it. It meant something to them. And this has been the belief of Christians down through the centuries. It's only recently that we come up with all these end-time crazy views. We based our approach of the book on the hermeneutical principle of audience relevance. Now if you just think about that for a little minute, it's got to make sense, okay? What did the book mean to the people to whom it was written? And if you take a futurist view of Revelation, you have to say it meant nothing to those people. He wrote it to those churches, those churches got it and said, oh, this is for a couple thousand years later, we don't need to worry about this stuff. No, it was for them. It had to have meaning to the original readers. Now, if the book of Revelation was written to the Berean Bible Church, which is in Virginia Beach, Virginia, in other words, if we saw this in verse 4, John, to the Berean Bible Church that is in Virginia Beach, Virginia, grace to you and peace. Most Christians read this book like it says that. They just put their church in there, their century, their country, whatever. They put that in there. And that's how it reads. But that's not what it said. Well, maybe verse 11 says this, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to Brian Bible Church. That 945 Rion Drive, Virginia Beach, Virginia. No. If this was the case, if it did say that, and then... We looked at this verse, Revelation 1, the very first verse of the book, the revelation of Yeshua the Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. It's written to us, and this stuff is going to happen soon. And verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things written in, the time is near. So if the book of Revelation was written to us, would you expect the events of this book to happen soon? If you understood language, (laughs) you would, okay? He says, listen, I'm writing these things which must soon take place. Now, anybody who could take soon and make it 2,000 plus years, we've got a problem with language. We just have a problem with language. And the time is near. 2,000 years later, that's kind of near, right? No. It's written to the people of that day. The original audience, the seven churches in Asia, that's who it's written to. They all expected the things in this book to happen soon. Because that's part of the teaching of the book. Soon. Now this brings us to the third key of Revelation, which is the theme of the book. So we have to understand, when was it written? What's the approach? And what's its theme? What's this book about? This is where everybody gets way off. Well, all those are off track on, okay? But this one, really. What's the theme? Most people think what? It's, the theme is the destruction of planet Earth. The end of the world. We began to touch on this theme last week. It's in Revelation 1-7. 
It says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the land, not earth, will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. This passage speaks of Christ's second coming and judgment on Israel. Now we noticed last time that cloud comings in the Tanakh are frequently prophetic emblems of God's judgment on a nation. Whenever He's going to judge a nation, He comes to that nation in the clouds. Just go back to the Tanakh and look at the language used there. This is familiar Hebrew language. The coming in Revelation is to be upon those who pierced Him. Who's that? The Jews. Well, the New Testament continually continually points out that the people who pierced Christ were the first century Jews. They're the ones who pierced Him. They're the ones that caused the crucifixion to come about. That's what they cried out. Crucify Him! Also, those who pierced Christ are all the tribes of the earth. Now, earth is not a good translation here. When you think earth, you think the whole earth. Right? You think the globe. <laughs> I don't, but you do. Okay. <laughs> Which ref- the, the, tra- the word here is gay, and it means land. All those on the land. And the land was a specific reference to Israel. Israel was the land. See, if you learn to read the New Testament in light of the Tanakh, you start understanding the language. This book introduces readers to the theology of judgment. And specifically, God's judgment sanctions against the nation Israel. Israel had crucified the Lord, and they publicly called God's judgment down on themselves. Look what they said in Matthew 27-25. And all the people said, these are Jews. His blood shall be on us and on our children. And it was. Listen, God's judgment on Israel in AD 70 matched their crime. The crucifixion of Christ. This crime was the worst in history, the murder of the Son of God. So the punishment was the worst in history. And to call anything Else, the great tribulation is to downplay the immensity of that generation's crime. Now, the Olivet Discourse, I'm sure you're familiar with that. It's Christ's prophetic speech on His coming and and the end of the age and what's going to happen. All the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have an Olivet Discourse. John doesn't have one. Why didn't John have one? Because John wrote the book of Revelation. And that's his Olivet Discourse. Okay? He went into a little more, little more detail than the rest of them did. Alright? So the Olivet Discourse contains Christ's prophecy of the destruction of the temple, of the tribulation, of the second coming. And a number of Bible scholars note that Revelation seems to be John's, by John I mean John Eliezer or Lazarus, version of the Olivet Discourse. And it's his expansion on it. In other words, it's a lot more than you know what you see in the synoptics. So let's look at a comparison 
of the Olivet Discourse and the Revelation and see if they're the same subject, talking about the same thing. First of all, Revelation 1.1 says the events of the book are shortly to come to pass. All right, we've looked at that many times. We'll look at uh, Matthew 24.34. Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, biblically, a generation was 40 years. So Christ is saying, this generation, the one I'm talking to, And if you look at the way Yeshua uses the word generation, I think it will be abundantly clear that He always refers to contemporaries. The Jewish people of His own period. Look at every use of it. You'll find that. Yeshua here very plainly and very clearly tells His disciples, that's who He's talking to, that all of the things He had mentioned in all of the discourse would come to pass in their generation. This includes... If you look at the, all of the discourse, the gospel being preached into all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the second coming of man, all these things would happen in that generation. This is so clear that it greatly troubles those who hold to a futuristic eschatology. C.S. Lewis said, this is the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. What? Well, didn't God write the Bible? Isn't it the Bible inspired? So God made a mistake? It was embarrassing to him because it couldn't fit his theology. That generation didn't see it, not in his mind, so it couldn't be. Yeshua uses the near demonstrative here. This generation. He could have used the far demonstrative. That generation, some future, some other generation. No, every time this is used in the New Testament, it refers to something that's near in terms of time or distance. So both Revelation and the Olive Discourse say that the events they talk about are to come to pass soon, shortly, this generation. All right, secondly, both of them talk about the great tribulation. Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. You see why it's great? Because nothing ever surpasses this tribulation. All right? Well, Revelation, he says this. It's 7, 14. I said to him, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we got Revelation, we got the Olivet Discourse, both saying that the events they speak of are going to shortly come to pass. And then both of them talk about the great tribulation, which was happening at the time. Finally, both mention the temple and it's approaching destruction, and they even use the same terms. Revelation 11.2 says, Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. The holy city is what? It's Jerusalem. We talked about that last time. Okay, he talks here about nations and treading. The word tread here is the Greek word patheo, and the word nations is ethnos. Now, these same words are used in Luke, in Luke 21-24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword. This is Luke's all of his discourse. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. And will be led captive into the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. The word trampled here is also the Greek word patheo, and Gentiles is the Greek word ethnos. John and Luke are talking about the same subject. They use the same Greek words. 
Now, the Olivet Discourse, which forms the foundation of the Revelation, has a strong focus on Israel's fate. And you've got to understand this. The Olivet Discourse, the Revelation, is about Israel and its fate. The fourth gospel is the only gospel that doesn't include the Olivet Discourse, and that's because Lazarus says, I'm going to write a lot longer treatise on this, all right? I'm going to write a whole book about this, and he did, called the Revelation. Now, the theological content of the Olivet Discourse begins in Matthew 21, 19, where Christ curses the fig tree as he enters Jerusalem. He curses the fig tree, which was a symbol of Israel, and it just dried up and nothing was there, picturing what's going to happen to this nation. Well, shortly thereafter, he gives the parable of the householder in Matthew 21, 33. In this parable, he prophesies, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruit. Who's the you here? It's not you. That's the most important thing you got to understand. You is not you. Because he, he's not writing this to you. All right? You is the Jews here. And if you want to, if you question that, I'm going to give you solid proof it's the Jews. Okay? Turn that air up a little, will you? The Jews knew he was talking to them. Look at Matthew 21 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees, Jewish leaders, heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. They got it. He's talking to us. They said, hey, you people in the 21st century, don't worry about this because he's talking to us right now. Well, Matthew 23, Yeshua reproaches the scribes and the Pharisees. He calls the religious leaders of that day hypocrites. Whitewashed sepulchers. That's not very nice, is it? Joel Olsey would never say that. No, it's cold. <laughs> In Matthew 23, 31-36, he notes that Israel historically killed the prophets, and now she's about to kill the Son of God. In Matthew 23, 36, again, he speaks of this generation, and in verse 37-38, the focus is on Israel. It, that's indisputable. Now, this is the context building up to the Olive Discourse. And the very question that opens the Olivet Discourse concerns the temple. Look what he says, Matthew 24. Yeshua came out from the temple and was going away with his disciples, came up and point out the temple buildings. So his disciples, he just left, and the disciples sit down and they're pointing out the temple, and they say to him, Do you not see all these? He says to them, Do you not see all these things? The temple building is the Context, truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another that will not be torn down. They're talking about the Jewish temple. And Yeshua said, this is going to be torn down. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. So his disciples respond to him by asking what? What's their question then? When? When will that happen, Lord? In verse 3, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples come up to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? Lord, this is, I mean, the Jewish temple was, that's where God dwelt to them. That was the sign that they were the favored people. Well, how could that happen? When's this going to happen, Lord? 
And then they also asked him, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So I want you to get this. His coming and the end of the age are synchronous events. And it's the end of, not the world, the age, the Jewish age. So they're asking them, when's it going to happen? The Jewish temple is at the heart of the Olivet Discourse. You've got to get that. All right, let's look at one of the signs in verse 24-15. He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Where is this going to be standing? The holy place. What's, what's the holy place? It's the Jewish temple. So again, this, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the Jewish temple. Now notice some of the signs that he gives here. These are signs of his coming. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place. But that's not the end. So that would tell us that it's soon to us, right? Because we hear about wars and rumors of wars. Right now, that little Korean Sung Young, what's his name? He's over there <laughs> stirring things up, right? So, I mean, wouldn't Christians today say, and listen, mark my words. Christian, you're going to see blogs, you're going to see messages. This is the end times. There's wars on the horizon. People, let me ask you this. When in the world have there not been wars and rumors of wars? Okay, very good. There was a time when there weren't wars and there weren't rumors of wars. You say, really? Yeah. It was called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. So during that time, when there was peace, that would have been a significant sign. See, Augustus inaugurated an age of peace in 17 B.C. in the Roman Empire proper. This period of peace remained comparatively undisturbed until the time of Nero. So there was no wars. There was no rumors of wars. Rome ruled. That was it. Now the wars and the rumors of wars in the Pax Romana immediately preceded the tribulation. So, this is not talking about, you know, you could go at any other time in history, you got wars, you got rumors of wars. So this is a significant event at that time. So, another sign he gives, notice here that you are going to be hearing. Again, who's the you, who's the context, who's he writing to his disciples? The Jewish people, he says, you will hear these. Not us. Another sign. He says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So here Yeshua tells us, the gospel is going to reach out to the world, and then the end will come. Now everyone's today saying, well obviously the gospel hasn't gone to the end of the world yet, so the end can't come yet. But remember one thing, Yeshua was a Jew, he's speaking to Jews, salvation was of the Jews, the early Christian church was made up of totally Jews for about the first ten years other than proselytes who got in. It wasn't until Antioch that they decided, we've got to get out beyond Judaism. We've got to reach out to the Gentiles. And that's where Christian missions began. They began to go to the world. The Gospel was to go beyond Judaism before the end came. Now, Scripture shows us, listen, that the Gospel was preached in all the world before A.D. 70. The Bible says that. All right. For example, look at Colossians 1, 5, and 6. 
Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, talking to the Colossians, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. So they had the gospel preached to them. They were believers. Now watch what he next says. Just as in all the world also. What? The gospel came to you and it also came to all the world? Wait a minute. At the time of the Colossians, this is one of Paul's four prison epistles. And the general consensus is that these epistles were written during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Now, if that's the case, then Paul wrote Colossians around 60 to 63 from Rome. So by 63 AD, the gospel had come to the Colossians, Paul says, and to all the world. Maybe Paul didn't know what he's talking about. No, that's not a good answer, okay? This is what the Bible says. Now, there's a lot of people today who say the gospel hasn't reached this person and that person, so we've got to keep going because we get the gospel out, then the Lord will return. Well, you're a little bit late. Paul said it had already been preached. Look at Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Yeshua the Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. What? The whole world's hearing about the faith of the Romans. What's the faith of the Romans? Their faith is in the gospel of Christ. So the gospel is going to the whole world at the time Paul wrote Romans, this is AD 58. Well, so that sign has been fulfilled. First sign, wars and rumors, that was fulfilled in the first century. This sign was fulfilled in the first century. Another sign that Yeshua gives was, there's going to, when you're going to see an abomination of desolation. The one that Daniel spoke about. It's going to be in the holy place. That's the temple. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, wrote this. When the temple was destroyed, Titus, army, that's the Roman general, took the Roman emblem, an eagle with CPQR, the Senate and population of Rome, on it into the Holy of Holies and set it up and bowed down in worship of Caesar. Now, I think this is basically the final act of the abomination that makes desolate. But I think this abomination began in the encircling of Jerusalem by the Roman armies. Look what Luke says. He says, but when you see Jerusalem, the people he's writing to, when you see it, first century believers, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize her desolation is near. I mean, we're going down, people. We're surrounded. He warns them to flee when this happens. Look at Matthew 24, 16. To those who are in Judea, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, Yeshua is speaking to the people of His day. He's warning them of the 80, 70 destruction that's going to come by the Romans. And He tells them, flee to the mountains. People, look at this. Just look at this verse and let's think just for a second. This is talking about the end of the world, most people say, right? Okay, well, so he's telling the people in Judea to do something. What about the rest of us? And what does he tell the people in Judea to do? Go to the mountains. How in the world does that help if this is a worldwide event? The whole globe is going to be burned up with fire. How does going to the mountains help? And how come he's only telling the people in Judea to do it? It's a local event. Now, Jerusalem was surrounded by armies, as Luke said. And the way they would fight back then is, you know, the armies would surround. Jerusalem was a fortress, all right? So the armies would surround it. They couldn't get in, so they would just surround it. They'd cut off all supplies coming in. You know, they don't have any food. They don't have any water. Basically, that's the idea, and just wait it out. Wait till the people inside, 
you know, and if you want to read something interesting, read Josephus' War of the Jews. He talks about what happened during this war. And it's just sickening, the stuff that went on. Because there was no food. They were dying of hunger. They were dying of thirst. They were fighting among themselves inside. Well, so they, they sieged Jerusalem. They got this army around it. And so everybody's like, okay, we're going down. This is, this is crazy. Well, then something happened. Nero died in the middle of the war in June of AD 68. Well, Vespasian was leading the siege against Jerusalem. So he hears Nero's dead. He stopped the fighting, pulled all his troops out. He went back to Rome to fight to become the new emperor. Hey, wait a minute. I want to be the next emperor. I'm leaving this fight. Come on, people. We're going back. During this time, okay, so you're surrounded. All this stuff's going on. And all of a sudden they leave and you're like, cool, they're gone. What did the Christians do? They did just what Matthew 24, 16 says. They fled to the mountains. The Christians got out of there because they knew what Christ said. Okay, this is coming down now. What he talked about, this is happening. Let's get out of here. What did the rest of the Jews do at this time? They ran into Jerusalem. Why? It's a fortress. If, you, if there's a battle going on, let's be in the fortress. So the Christians go out. They go to Pella. They flee to the mountains. The Jews go in there. Later, the Romans come back and finish the job. And everybody there died or was carried off captive. All right? Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. When the Romans resumed the Jewish war, they were furious and they came in with a vengeance. There was so much bloodshed that according to Josephus, the bloodshed was putting out fires in Jerusalem. That's a lot of blood. Josephus says the people were cutting each other open to try to get food out of their stomachs. It says mothers were roasting their own children because they were starving. This is all documented in Josephus' histories, War of the Jews. Now notice what he says about this tribulation. Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Listen, people, nothing, nothing will ever equal it. The destruction of Jerusalem was far more than the fall of a Jewish city. You know, here's what's amazing to me. Most Christians never even heard of A.D. 70 or the fall of Jerusalem. They don't even know what happened. Nothing has ever equaled this. Because it was the the destruction and the conclusion of old covenant Israel, the people of God. That's it. He wiped them out. Very significant prophetic event. Now verse 28 refers to the gathering of the eagles. It says, wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. The word vulture here is ithos, and it means eagle. The eagle was the symbol of Rome. In other words, when Rome started gathering, Israel is going to be a corpse. Then verse 29 speaks of the falling stars and darkened skies. But immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And see, people read verses like this in the Olivet Discourse, and they say, well, obviously this hasn't happened. The sun's still up there. Good argument. We're done, right? Well, it's a good argument if you know... (laughs) 
No, it's not a good argument, okay? The sun will be darkened. You've got to understand apocalyptic language. Again, Revelation, and notice they're in capital letters, he's quoting from the Tanakh. This is language that Jews were familiar with. It's apocalyptic terminology taken from the Jewish Bible. It's not talking about global destruction. It's talking about the fall of Israel. Listen, when Israel was destroyed, their lights went out. Remember, this discourse, this thing is about the Jewish temple. Stars represent governments, whether heavenly or earthly. Israel has fallen. We see the same idea in the Revelation. Revelation 12, 7-9, there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels, warring against the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now notice, in Matthew he says the stars will fall from the sky. And in Revelation it says Satan was thrown down to the earth with his angels. So Matthew says stars. John says Satan and his angels. They're talking about the same event. Because throughout the Scripture, these gods, lower g gods were called stars. So verse 30 tells us that the destruction of Jerusalem was a sign that Yeshua had returned and was reigning with the saints in the kingdom. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This sounds just like our theme verse in Revelation. Look at all the tribes of the earth are mourning, both verses. Son of man's coming in the clouds of the sky, both verses. They're talking about the same thing. The theme of Revelation is the fall of the Jewish temple, just like the Olivet Discourse. Then verse 31 refers to what many would call the rapture. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So they're going to gather up His elect. Now, if you compare this with 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, and 17, you'll see that it's the same event. This is the gathering, the spiritual gathering of the elect into the kingdom of God. They're not being snatched off the planet. They're being brought into the kingdom. It's a spiritual gathering. Now, Matthew 24, 32-34, Yeshua says that these things will all take place in that first century generation. Look what he says in Matthew 24, 32, 34. Now learn a parable from the fig tree. You saw me curse the fig tree. Learn a parable. When its branch is ready to become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, you, the people I'm talking to, you guys listening to me, my disciples, and the rest of you right here now, right now, he says, when you see this, recognize that he is near right at the door. The coming of Christ is near. It's right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, some commentators have tried to make this say that the race of the Jews, they take generation, and they say, well, generation here is ganas. It means race. No, that's not ganas. It's genea is the word generation, and genea doesn't mean race. 
Ganas means race, and he could have said that. He's not talking about the Jewish, you know, the Jewish race will still be here. No, he's talking about that generation. You know, it's interesting, in the original Schofield Bible, they've corrected that since this, but in this verse, Schofield actually switched the definition of the word from the definition of Ganea to the definition of Ganas. Now, he, he said this is the word Ganas, but it means, and he gave the definition for or this is the word Ganea, but he gave the definition of the word Ganas. Entirely different word. Entirely different meaning. But it fit his agenda. Okay? You know what the stupidest thing in the world is? A Bible teacher twisting the Bible to make it say what he wants. What's the point of that? If it's God's word, our desire, our job is just to find out what does it say and then line up under it. Not manipulate it, not twist it. Listen, he said this was going to happen in this generation, biblical generations, 40 years, within 40 years, what happened? The temple was destroyed. All of it took place, just like he said. He says all these things. What things is he talking about? Bless you. Read back in the Revelation. He says the rapture is going to happen. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. The Lord's second coming is going to come. All these things are going to take place in that generation because it's all about Israel. The focus of the Olivet Discourse is the destruction of Jerusalem at the second coming of Christ. Revelation simply expands on the Olivet Discourse. Not only is Israel's destruction the focus of Revelation, but her destruction is set forth in an interesting fashion. Israel is being punished by God for her adultery. In the Tanakh, Israel was considered the wife of Yahweh. Look at Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's, that's the twelve tribes. That's Israel. That's who the covenant's with. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although, watch, I was a husband to them, to Israel, to the twelve tribes. Now often the prophets mention the marital relation between Yahweh and Israel. But Israel chased after foreign gods. Continually. They're constantly accused of spiritual adultery. Finally, Israel killed God's son while crying, we have no king but Caesar. His blood be on us and on our children. Revelation is not about the end of the world, people. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm sorry that you no longer have the great tribulation to look forward to. I know that's discouraging to some people. You know? This is a positive eschatology, okay? <laughs> it doesn't... It, listen, this is what Israel's about. I mean, Revelation's about. Revelation is a divorce decree from God the Father to Israel, his wife, his adulterous wife. God is writing Israel a bill of divorce, and that's what the book of Revelation is. In Revelation 4, we see God seated on a judicial throne. God's throne is mentioned in 18 of Revelation's 22 chapters. In fact, throne occurs 62 times in the New Testament, 47 in the book of Revelation. There's a strong judicial undercurrent revelation. God is on His judgment throne and He's judging His adulterous wife. In Revelation 5, God has in His hand 
a seven-sealed scroll. And this scroll represents God's divorce decree to Israel. In Deuteronomy 24, God's law required that a writing of divorcement be presented at a case of divorce. Here's my writing. Here's what I have against her. So here God presents the divorce papers to Israel. The scroll, which is written on the front and the back, reflects the imagery of Ezekiel 2. Where Ezekiel is handed a scroll, it's written on front and back. In Ezekiel 2, the scroll has to do with lamentations and mourning against Jerusalem. The two scrolls in Ezekiel and Revelation are related. They're against Jerusalem for her sins. So the seven seals of the scroll reflect the sevenfold judgment of God that He warned Israel about in Leviticus 26. Then I will act with hostility against you, the you is Israel, and I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. The sevenfold judgments in Leviticus have a strong influence in the judgment language of Revelation throughout the book. God's prescribed punishment for adultery is death by stoning, Leviticus chapter 20. So what do you think God did to his adulterous wife? He stoned her. Revelation 16 says, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each. That is a big hailstone. Okay? Came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague, and the hail because its plague was extremely severe. Now, you say, well, that's a big hailstone. I never saw a hailstone that big. That's kind of crazy. Let me tell you what you do. You take the book of Revelation, and you go to just Josephus. You get Josephus' War of the Jews, and you compare them to one another. And it'll look like they're overlays on top of one another. Because what you see happening in Revelation, Josephus talks about happening during that war. He says the Romans had catapults, and they put these 100-pound stones on them. And they flung these stones over the wall. So they, you'd be in Jerusalem and all of a sudden, ah, smash, and just things coming in, crashing all over. This is what it's talking about. This is history, people. This is all written down in the War of the Jews. It's his historical event. It happened. The image here is of Israel being stoned to death because she's an adulterous wife. Israel is not only Yahweh's wife in the Tanakh, she's also called to serve him as a priest. Now thus in Revelation, Israel is represented as a harlot dressed in priestly garments. And since she's a priest, another old covenant law comes into effect. Also, the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. So not only did God stone Israel, he burned her with fire. Revelation 17, 16. These will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her with fire. And Jerusalem was burned to the ground. Now, having legally disposed of Israel at the end of Revelation, what does God do? He got the bill of divorcement he got rid of his adulterous wife. He took a new wife. Guess who his new wife is? The church. The church of Jesus Christ. It's his wife. In Revelation 21, after Israel's death, we see a city coming down out of heaven adorned as a spotless virgin bride for her husband. Got rid of that wife. Here comes a new wife. 
Then we read of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The new Jerusalem is the church, according to the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 12.22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. So the heavenly Jerusalem is the church. Church is the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the bride of Christ. Thus, the theme of Revelation is the execution of God's divorce decree against Israel for her harlotries, for her adulterous relationships with other gods. She's put to death, and God turns to take a new bride, the church, which is now the Israel of God. So we looked at three keys to the book of Revelation. When was it written? According to the eternal evidence, it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. People, internal evidence has to be way stronger than external. Because internal is inspired. That's God's view. Okay? Secondly, we asked, what's the approach? Well, we look at Revelation from a full preterist view because this view understands all the prophecies that have already been had. It takes the time statements into consideration and says, he said soon, he meant soon. Now, if he didn't mean, if he didn't come when he said he would, then we got a problem with inspiration or we got a problem with trusting Christ. Thirdly, what is the theme? The book centers around God's judgment of national Israel by destroying it and the old covenant. Now, the identities of two of the main enemies in Revelation, the beast and the harlot, also give us clues to interpreting Revelation. So let's look at two of the key players in this book, all right? The beast, one of the most dreaded images in Scripture. Everybody knows about Mr. 666, right? <laughs> Kathy and I, for our insurance, our medical insurance, we have Christian Care MediShare. Our insurance premium every month was 666. And I thought, that's weird that they're letting, you know, they don't change that. <laughs> I just I got I thought I got a kick out of it. You know, people freak out over that kind of stuff, you know, but I thought it was kind of cool. But we see this imagery everywhere. Do you remember? I, I remember very clearly when the grocery stores went to bar scanners, Christians were freaking out. No, it's the mark of the beast. I'm not going to the grocery store anymore. I'm like, well, you're gonna starve to death, okay? You're not taking, it's, you know, because all of a sudden we've heard all this stuff about marks and now you gotta scan everything, you know, and people were scared. This is it. If they only understood the book. All these fears for nothing. Now, most commentators agree that the beast imagery in Revelation shifts between the generic and the specific. See, the beast is sometimes, in some contexts, his generically his kingdom is considered generically. And elsewhere, it's a particular individual. In Revelation 13.8, John says the beast is a man. But in 1711, the interpretive angel says the beast is not only seven kings, but an eighth. Now, the generic identity of the beast in Roman Empire was the Roman Empire of the first century. That's the generic. It's the kingdom of the beast. Yeshua was crucified under the authority of the Roman Empire, and the seven churches that Revelation is addressed to lived in that empire. Rome was the beast, but it was more specific There was a specific identity. It was a man. Who is Mr. 666 of Revelation 13.8? Now watch. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding 
So you get what he's saying here? If you got understanding, you, this is not a trick, it's not a secret, it's not a mathematical code. If you got understanding, calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. Now because people don't understand the proper approach to the book of Revelation, because they don't understand when it was written, because they don't understand the theme, they come up with all kinds of crazy ideas on what is 666. For example, did you know 666 was Google? I mean, yeah, Google, obviously Google's the beast. Okay, look it. And look what they do. You know, you take that little circle there and you see the different sixes going off in each. That's three sixes. Google's the beast. No, no, wait, maybe, maybe it's not Google. Maybe it's Monster Drink. You say, well, how in the world did Monster Drink become the beast? Well, you see those marks on the can, the three marks? That's the Hebrew Vav, the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So you take the 666 and you got the monster drink is the beast. Now, how monster drink is the beast and what it's going to do to you, I'm not really sure. But we look, you know, we find this stuff everywhere, okay? You can find it everywhere. And people today are, you know, there's no shortage of people coming up with new stuff on what the beast is and, you know, how you got to avoid it and all this stuff. I got an email just last week from a guy who says, I'm a prophet of Yahweh. And I went, yeah, you are. <laughs> he, says, he says to me in this email, I shall tell you what shall come to pass in the near future. I'm like, good, what stocks do I need to buy? He says, I shall reveal to you the great mysteries of the Bible, such as 666. And I thought, I don't need that reveal. I already got that. I understand that. And then in the end of the email, of course, it's all through it is blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the email, it says, I leave you with this. If you want to know 666, obey Torah. Because Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. So basically, he was telling me in this email, I got some things right because I knew the name of God, and, you know, and I understood something, but I was a Torah breaker. And because I was a Torah breaker, I was going to be judged, and I didn't understand things because I'm a Torah breaker, because I don't follow Torah. And I thought, well, I'm not an Israelite, and God did away with that. That was the whole thing of the book of Revelation. We missed all that, right? Believers, we don't need to get caught up in all this crazy hype, all this nonsense. If we just understood this book was written to the people in the first century about things to happen in the first century. The beast of Revelation, listen, I'm going to tell you who he is right now. Write this down, okay? This is, this is revelatory. Lucius Domitius Ahinobarbus. That's who the beast was. Better known by his adoptive name, Nero Claudius Caesar. He's the man who fits the bill of the specific and personal expression of the beast. Let's look at some of Nero's qualifications. The beast is identified by the number 666. In the ancient days, alphabet served a twofold purpose. It was letters and numbers. Now, first and foremost, it was letters, of course, but it also served numbers. They were assigned numerical values that served. Now, I think the most familiar example of this would be Roman numeral system. We're all familiar with that. The Greek and Hebrew languages operated similarly. Nero Caesar was spelled according to the Hebrew spelling, and John and his readers were Hebrews gives us precisely the value 666. Nero Claudius Caesar, 666. That's weird. Because here's John writing about a beast. Nero's in power at the time. 
And he happens to make the mistake of, you know, putting 666 with, that Nero would figure out to. I mean, was he trying to confuse these people? No. They knew exactly what was going on. Isn't it remarkable that the most relevant emperor who lived while the seven churches lived and lived while John wrote just happens to have a name that precisely fits the sum of the number? Is that sheer coincidence? Is this a historical accident? Remember, audience relevance. I want you people to understand this. Let him who has understanding calculate this. All right, you guys, Nero's in power at this time. What would have been the purpose of frustrating the readers for 2,000 years? They couldn't possibly identify a 21st century beast in the first century. It's far more reasonable to assume that John's original readers understood him very well and they knew who the beast was. Now, the character of the beast qualifies Nero for this role. He's a beast, okay? Nero possessed a bestial nature. Nero often acted in horrible viciousness. According to Suetonius, Nero was a sodomite who's said to have castrated a boy named Spurius and married him. You know, people today are freaking out about all the homosexual, all the stuff's going on. This is nothing new, people. The Roman Empire had all these problems. Rome wasn't destroyed by an external enemy. Rome died because it just was so corrupt it fell apart. Almost all the Caesars were homosexual. It's, it's said of Nero that he enjoyed homosexual rape and torture. Nero killed his parents. He killed his brother. He killed his wife. He killed his aunt and many other close relatives. He's a nice guy. Okay? <laughs> He so prostituted his own chastity that after defiling almost every part of his body, he devastated this kind of crazy game. You know, depravity doesn't end. Once you get going on the road to depravity, you just got to have more depravity, all right? So he would cover himself with the skin of an animal, and they would get in a cage, and they would let him out of this cage, and he would run out and he would attack the private parts of men and women who were bound to stakes. And Revelation 13, 7 speaks of the power given to the beast to make war with the saints. Nero was the first of the imperial authorities to persecute Christians. The Roman historian Tacitus records the scene in Rome when the persecution of the Christians broke out. Tacitus was a Roman historian. He says, and their death was aggravated with mockeries, insomuch that wrapped in the hides of wild beasts, they were torn into pieces by dogs or fastened to crosses to be set on fire. And when darkness fell, they might be burned to illuminate the night. See, what Nero did, Nero took Christians and he placed them on stakes and he covered them with pitch. And at night he would, alive, and at night he would light them to illuminate his garden. Do you think the Christians would associate Nero with a beast? Yeah, they sure would. Revelation 13, and here's just another, this is quirky coincidence in the Bible. Revelation 13, 5 says the beast would continue for 42 months. Right? And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Guess how long the ironic, the neuronic persecution lasted? 
Nero began his persecution in AD 64 and lasted until his death in June AD 68. It was three and a half years. It was 42 months. Nero fits the bill of the beast. The Bible says the beast was to die by a sword, according to Revelation 13.10 and 14. You know how Nero died? Well, according to Suetonius, he says he drove a dagger into his throat, aided by Epaphroditus, his private secretary. Nero killed with the sword, and he was killed by the sword. Now, Revelation 17.3 tells us that the beast is red. And the red color, many say, what's well, indicative of the bloodshed that was caused by the beast. But Suetonius writes of the legend associated with Nero's ancestral parentage, which explains why Nero had a red beard. Now, the beast number is 666 in Hebrew. Nero's name adds up to 666. The beast is an awful character. Nero had a beastly character. The beast made war with the saints for 42 months. Nero persecuted the saints for three and a half years. The beast dies with a sword. Nero's killed with a dagger. The beast is red. Nero had a red beard, which is very unusual in those times. Evidently, the beast of Revelation is Nero. Remember, John told his readers, those first century Christians who lived in Asia Minor, that these things were to soon take place. We 21st century Christians are not looking for some terrible beast to arise and bring great destruction on believers. This already happened. This doesn't mean we won't go through persecution like the believers all around the world, but this neurotic persecution, the great tribulation, is over. It happened the first century. So, you know, it's just a coincidence that this beast so clearly fits into that first century model. Well, there's another enemy in Revelation besides the beast, and that's the harlot. Revelation 17. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Yeshua. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Since the woman is seated on a seven-headed beast and is called Babylon, some thought she represents the city of Rome. But since the beast itself is Rome, and the Roman Empire, or the Roman leader, this would be redundant. Babylon is used here to refer to an enemy of God which in this case is Israel. All right? Babylon represents Israel. There are several reasons, I think, to identify this harlot as Jerusalem. The harlot's called Babylon. Babylon is called the great city in Revelation 14.8. The great city is Jerusalem. In Revelation 11.8, which is the first mention of the great city, refers to the place where our Lord was crucified. So the great city is where the Lord was crucified. The great city is Jerusalem. She's great because of her covenantal status with Yahweh in the Old Covenant. Jerusalem had previously been called pagan names comparable to Babylon, such as in Revelation 8. She's called spiritually Sodom and Egypt. 
That's because she acts like God's enemy. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, God calls Jerusalem Sodom and Gomorrah because of her sinfulness. It says the woman is drunk with the blood of the saints. According to Revelation 16.6 and 18, she's drunk with this blood. Now, throughout the book of Acts, Jerusalem is portrayed as the persecutor of Christianity. Jerusalem was the one that was spilling the blood. Look at Acts 7, 51 and 52. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. This is Stephen. He's talking to Jewish people. You are doing just what your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Jerusalem was killing the Christians, trying to stomp out Christianity. And in the Olivet Discourse context, Yeshua said of Israel, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Jerusalem is going to kill believers. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. The woman is clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold. The harlot here is arrayed in Jewish priestly colors. Exodus 28 prescribes these colors for the high priest. The high priest also wore a tiara on his forehead that said, Holiness unto Yahweh. Well, the beast also, the harlot here, the blasphemous harlot, wears a tiara on her forehead. It says, Mother of Harlots. She's supposed to be holy to the Lord, but she's become the mother of harlots. Now, there is an obvious literary contrast between the harlot and the bride in Revelation. If we compare Revelation 17, which talks about the harlot, Revelation 21, that talks about the bride, we see two women. One's a harlot, the other's a bride. One is Jerusalem from below, that's the harlot. One is Jerusalem that's above. Paul talks about these two Jerusalems in Galatians 4, 25 and 26. Now notice how John is introduced to the harlot. And notice how he's introduced to the bride. They are negative, mere images. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls dropped down. Then one of the angels said, seven, same exact thing. Is come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Negative mirror images. The harlot is seated on the seven-headed beast, which obviously represents Rome. This indicates not identity with Rome, but some kind of alliance with Rome. See, the Jews were the ones that demanded Christ's crucifixion. When Pilate wanted to turn Yeshua loose because he found no guilt in him, the Jews said, they cried out, away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. What? You traitorous, blasphemous priest. They're siding with Caesar against God. See, the Jews constantly agitated against the Christians to get Romans involved in their persecution. In Acts 17.7, the Christians were accused by the Jews as those who preached another king contrary to the decrees of Caesar. The harlot is seated on the beast because Jerusalem is dependent upon Rome to persecute the Christians. 
Revelation was obviously, people, at least obvious in my mind, written before Nero's death. The prophecies of this book have been fulfilled. It was written about things that were soon to take place after its writings. It deals with the persecution of believers under Judaism and Rome and predicts God's judgment upon these enemies of the church. Its purpose, therefore, is to strengthen and encourage believers that are going through the trial of those days. This book is to be understood preteristically rather than futuristically. In doing so, you avoid the wild speculation of interpreting everything in the daily news as a sign of the time. And again, mark my words, you're going to hear soon about we're in the end times because of war with North Korea. All right, this is just another sign of the times. We got every, everything that happens is a sign of the times. Let me tell you something. Our country's not getting worse because it's the end times. Our country's getting worse because Christians are neglecting their calling. See, we're called to be salt and light in the community in which we're in. We're called to call our world to faith in Yeshua the Christ. And Christians have just abandoned that. And we look so much like the world, there's no distinction anymore. People, we don't stand out at all in the world in which we live. That's why our world's getting worse. We've got to speak up. We've got to quit doing everything the world does and start being different. I think that futurism causes a pessimistic attitude about the future. You know, you got nothing to look forward. We're looking forward to the beast. We're looking forward to the great tribulation. And it really blinds believers to the wonders of the new covenant. I can remember as a futurist looking at Revelation, thinking, you know, and that he's going to dwell with his people. That'll be so awesome. That's the glories of the new covenant. You know, we don't go to a temple now. We don't take our sacrifice to the temple because God dwells in us. We are the temple. We're sacred space. And those believers who are living, looking for that future second coming that is going to be soon, they set them up for disappointment, themselves up for disappointment and heartache. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And how long have Christians been hoping for the second coming? I remember as clear as if it was yesterday, the day Katie was born, 40 years ago. Holding her in my hand, thinking, this child will never make school age before the Lord returns. I had a Bible. I read it. I knew everything was soon, soon, quickly. I just didn't know it was written somebody else, not me. Okay? So I thought, you know, she will never start school. But when she started school, I was like, what's going on here? How long is soon going to be dragging out for And then she graduated grade school and high school. And I'm like, what in the world? You know? And you start thinking, what? my hope had been deferred. And listen, it, it caused me to not plan for the future because why? Why would I plan for the future? There is no future. God's coming. Why polish brass on a sinking ship? I'm just ready to get out of here. I don't need a retirement. I don't need to think about the future. I need plan. I'm just waiting for the rapture. Beam me up. And listen, I think the futuristic doctrine practically is damaging. It's damaging our country because these we got political leaders who think you got to stand with political Israel no matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter how much of Christ rejecting God haters they are. We got to stand by them. That's faulty theology. And faulty theology costs people. 
Because if you think He's coming soon and you're expecting it and you're living that way, if you realize He's already came, get on with it, enjoying your life, planning for the future, sharing the glorious good news that there's no tribulation. Okay? Our hope and desire has been realized in the second coming of Christ. Listen, the tabernacle of God is with men. He dwells with us. We live in the glories of the new covenant age. Right now. The revelation of Yeshua the Christ, which He gave to Him to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Soon. And if you think it's coming soon to you today, then your hope, your desire is going to be frustrated. But if you realize this was fulfilled in the first century, you know, I guess when I came to this view, the most exciting thing to me was this. The Lord said, soon? And He meant it. Taking His words to the bank. Because He was, you know, I questioned that sometimes. Like, soon? Yeah, it doesn't, can't mean that. <laughs> Or, or I took it as meaning soon to me. I didn't think about it was 2,000 years later than when it was written, so it couldn't still be soon. I didn't figure out all that stuff for a while. Be, believers, let me tell you something that's really fantastic right now. We live in the full-blown glories of the new covenant. God dwells in us. He's with us 24-7. No sacrifices needed. No worry about you know being separated from His love because we are in covenant relationship with Him. Next week, we're going back to John, and we're going to talk about one of the most beautiful things in being in covenant with him is that he's not going to lose one sheep. None of them. Because he's the Father. Him and the Father both are securing the sheep. Everyone that's his will end up with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I realize this is a difficult subject to so many people. They've been taught by the masses. They've been confused just following along that calf path that so many are going down, Lord. Help us to, to learn to understand the Bible through the rules of hermeneutics, Lord. Let us apply logic. Let us apply the things that you've taught us that we may look at Scripture and understand it. Father, help us as we look at this book to understand audience relevance. This meant something. Something very important to the people who receive this letter. Father, I thank You for Your grace. And again, I pray. I pray that Your people would not buy this because I'm saying it, but they would be Bereans and they would study this to see if it is so. Give us the heart of Bereans, Lord. May we dig in Scripture and prove things that we might walk in it. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace. Amen.